Hello, hello. If you are watching this video, that means that our church leadership made the call to cancel in-person services this weekend due to inclement weather. And at this point, pretty much ever since I started at this church, I feel like we have one of these a year. So it's kind of nice to just get it out early this time around. Um, so welcome to our worship service. Anyone that's joining us from the comforts of your home, maybe your own bed, or you chill on the couch with your family. We're so glad you could join us. We hope you're staying comfortable, safe, and warm during this time. This message that I had to have to share with you guys today came from a sort of irrational fear that I have. And the irrational fear that I have, I know it's irrational because it's very, very unlikely that this will ever happen, but there's a small enough chance that it might happen that it lingers kind of in the back of my mind. And this fear is that when I'm not at work, when I'm either at home in SoCal for classes or visiting family or I'm traveling and I'm visiting a church, my fear is that I'll show up to church um, on Sabbath and be there to worship and I'll show up with my friends or family, whoever I'm, uh, I'm on vacation with, and I'll show up and the lead pastor, for whatever reason, um, will not be able to come to church that day. And people will look around and be like, oh my goodness, oh no, we need someone that can preach the message because our pastor cannot make it for whatever reason. And someone's gonna point me out and be like, hey, isn't that guy a pastor? And then on the fly, I'll have to come up with a message to share. That's a very big irrational word that I have. And it sounds ridiculous when I say this out loud in a message, but I think there's a small enough, a small enough chance that it happens that it kind of lingers in the back of my mind. So actually, anytime I'm not at rock and I'm visiting a church in SoCal or uh, like this past uh, Christmas where I was up in Seattle church, in the back of my mind, I just run through this little exercise like, okay, if I show up to church and Pastor Robin is unable to give a message, what would I talk about? I just keep it there just because it's nagging anxiety that I have. And, and this message actually is inspired by that fear, by, by an idea that I had while I was driving to church a few weeks ago up, um, up in Seattle. And because of that original thought, it has to do with kind of the past few weeks. Um, we kind of, we've kind of just come out of this time of like this holiday season where we just finished New Year's. We had our first Sabbath of the year last Sabbath. We had our, just finished kind of our end of the year series where Pastor Chris preached a mini two-part series on the last Sabbath and the first Sabbath of this upcoming year. But there's something about the last few weeks of the year, something that most people refer to as the holiday season, um, that the whole world kind of turns into this time of like, everyone is happy, having a good time, right? The, the greetings that we use during this time is have a happy new year, Merry Christmas, have a holly jolly Christmas. And for a lot of people, that's true, especially if you're a student or a teacher that works in education. I imagine that this time was a very welcome break for you to take a break in between semesters or a quick break before your finals to end the semester. I imagine that for some people, it's a time when you can see loved ones and travel and visit your friends and family. But that's not true for everyone. And I imagine there's some people here that are listening or you know someone that the last few weeks of the year um, and maybe the first week of this new year was actually a pretty rough time for them. And you were experiencing difficulties or tragedy or suffering or pain during a time. And I think especially during this holiday season, the last few weeks of the year, Christmas, New Year's, it's an especially difficult time to go through hardships, mainly because the sort of uh, the social expectation is that you're having an amazing time, that you're enjoying the new year, that you're happy and merry, but the reality is that's just not true for everyone. I remember when I was growing up, I was in elementary school, and most of you may not know this, but I had a small pet hamster growing up, 
maybe for about a year or so, and we were probably like in mid-elementary school, I'm thinking like fourth or fifth grade. And um, on this particular morning, I woke up, and it was Sabbath morning, and it was also Christmas. And we woke up Christmas morning, um, we're getting ready to go to church, and I woke up, my dad told me, hey, your hamster is dead. And that's, I just distinctly remember waking up, and like my dad so kind of like, I could tell he didn't really know how to say it, because this was our first pet, it's the first time experiencing this. Um, we had a pet, and his name was Sandy, and he told me, hey, I, I don't think he even knew what, what my hamster's name was, but he said, hey, uh, good morning, get ready for church. Also, uh, your hamster's dead, we found him this morning. And like, I just felt in that moment, like my whole world was like, what is going on in that moment? I remember going to church and people were like, oh my goodness, it's such a big blessing. Happy Sabbath and Merry Christmas. This is awesome. And that whole day at church was like, this day sucks. The worst Christmas ever. I hate this. Nobody even cares that my hamster's dead. How could everyone be so happy? And for anyone that's felt maybe a, a much, that's maybe a much smaller, lighter version of what anyone else may be feeling the past few weeks, um, or if you know anyone, that who's this past few weeks have been especially hard for them. I'm, I'm glad you turned in, you tuned into worship this past week because I'm hoping that in today, as we explore, as we look at three different people and the difficult situations that were placed in and how these three different people kind of approached and dealt with struggle and pain that they faced, I hope this message can be a message of hope for you. That in whatever you're going through, you can find a way to find peace and hope um, during this time of struggle, um, through these stories of these three different individuals. But before we go into a scripture in this message, I invite you to join me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that during this time you use this medium um, of, of these, as you stream this sermon, Lord, that this can be a time and a message and words that you can use, Father, that during this time, uh, not my will, but your be, yours be done, Father, as you spread this message of comfort and hope. Lord, you know who needs to hear this message, Father, so I ask that you speak through me and that I can speak your truth and your truth alone. Praise in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. The first person on this list that I want us to look at is someone that's found in the Old Testament. His name is Job. And just a quick refresher on the story of Job. It's a very tragic, and although the book of Job is very long, his, the plot line of the story of what he goes through is actually pretty short. Job is a righteous and blameless man, um, a very God-fearing man, who loses everything he owns and pretty much everyone he loves in the span of a single day. It's just, he experiences this mind-boggling tragedy. And in the aftermath of this great loss, Job spends the rest of the book of Job kind of philosophizing, processing, dealing with, and debating with people on how he can make sense of this great tragedy in his life. And the majority of the book of Job is Job, his wife, and three plus one more of his friends kind of debating and philosophizing and kind of helping Job process why did this great tragedy happen to him? His friends basically have the stance throughout the entire book that Job must have done something wrong. Their argument is, Job, the only reason this great catastrophe could have possibly happened to you is you must have sinned. You must have done something to wrong God, and that's why these terrible things have happened to you. And throughout the entire book, Job stands by the fact that he has done nothing wrong. And because Job is so convicted and convinced and firm in the fact that he has done nothing wrong, this tragedy is all the more difficult for him to process. And he really has a hard time dealing with this. <laughs> now, at the end of the book, um, God reveals himself to Job and basically tells Job, hey, you have no idea what you're talking about. All these questions you have, you're kind of out of your league, but you have done something good. And he basically blesses Job. And the book ends 
with kind of this happily ever after. Job's possessions are restored, his family is somewhat restored, and it kind of all ends well. But what you find as you read through this book is, is a very interesting thing because at the end you find that God says that Job has done something good and Job's view of God was accurate. And I always grew up, if you read the first and second chapter of this book, with the understanding that Job never cursed God. That in all this tragedy, the kind of amazing thing about Job is that Job never cursed God and never blamed God wrongly. However, what you find when you read the book of Job is that this image of Job just sitting there and grinning and bearing it and being like, this is totally okay, I'm okay with all these things that happened to me, praise God. That's not really how Job deals with this tragedy in his life. He doesn't just sit there without complaint, just burying this struggle like a steadfast rock. He complains. He actually complains a lot. To say that he complains is actually a bit of an understatement. He actually goes as far to make false accusations about God. He questions God's character. He questions God's sense of justice. He questions whether or not God even cares about him at all. In chapter 3, Job curses the day that he was born. He wishes that he was never born. And then later on in chapter 6, Job actually requests that God would just kill him because he doesn't have the strength to endure. And he says, I, I no longer have the strength to endure and I have nothing to live for. Remember, during all this, his wife is like right here with him. He still has brothers and sisters. But that's how low he feels. He asks God to just smite him. And then further on in chapter 9, he starts to make accusations about God. He says, for me, for he attacks me with a storm and repeatedly wounds me without cause. He will not let me catch my breath, but fills me instead with bitter sorrows. Basically accusing God of bullying him. And then later on in that same chapter, this is what he says about God and his character. Innocent or wicked, it is all the same to God. That's why I say he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When a plague sweeps through, he laughs at the death of the innocent. The whole world is in the hands of the wicked and God blinds the eyes of the judge. If he's not the one who does it, who is? These are pretty strong words. And, and honestly, when I was reading through this, I always felt like I felt like the image I had of Job kind of shattered because I always thought and was under, under the impression that throughout all of this, Job was defending God to his friends and, and Job never said a bad thing about God. But when you read the story of Job, that's not true at all. And if we're being honest, it kind of makes sense. If I was Job, I'd feel the same way. I'd feel betrayed. I'd feel hurt. But some of the stuff he says is pretty strong. Basically says that God kills innocent people, doesn't care when innocent people are hurting, that God personally was attacking him and was filling him with bitter sorrows, not allowing Job to breathe. Yet despite all of this yapping that Job does to God, at the end of the book, after God reminds Job that Job has no idea what he's talking about, God commends Job and actually says that Job has spoken rightly about God. Now, we know that that's not true, that not everything Job said was accurate. God doesn't care, doesn't not care about the innocent. God isn't someone that is, is purposely has this sense of injustice. But what God does commend Job for is the fact that Job questioned, he complained, he doubted, he wrestled with, and he cried out to God that throughout this entire ordeal, Job maintained an open dialogue with God. And in all that Job did, he did it to God. 
And it's a reminder for us, a reminder that God, as big as He is, He can take our complaints. He can take our, our woes, our struggles. He can take our yelling. He can take our false accusations. God can handle all of our doubts and our questions, especially when we're processing through grief, pain, and suffering. And like Job, you could actually go as far to say that God wants us to do that. When we suffer and we're, when we're in pain, God wants us to bring our complaints and our doubts to Him. First Peter says, cast all your cares upon Him, for He cares. Now, that's great and all, but what about for those of us that are listening and, and you are going through a really hard time and you're struggling and you you're, you're have these doubts and these questions, but you're not in a great place with God. Maybe you just, you can't remember the last time you cracked open your Bible. You can't remember the last time you had a true heartfelt prayer. And in this moment and in this season of your life where you are in pain and you're, you're suffering and you're struggling, you can't help but feel like, I need help. I want someone outside of me to help me deal with this. But you feel like you can't go to God because if you're being honest, you're, you're maybe a little bit embarrassed to go to God. You feel like, you know, I feel like I haven't really maintained that relationship and that dialogue with God. So it feels weird for me to go to God now that I need Him, even though I never went to Him when life was great. For those of us that, for those of us that feel that way, um, let's go ahead of several centuries to the ministry of Jesus, um, where in Mark chapter 9, a father brings his demon-possessed child to Jesus. And actually what happens is, is he brings his demon-possessed child to, to his disciples first, and Jesus' disciples are unable to do anything. And so eventually, he brings him to Jesus, and he asks Jesus for help. Mark chapter 9, verse 21 reads, Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? As he brings him to Jesus' feet, he asked, how long has your son been like this? From childhood, he answered, verse 22. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, Jesus asked, everything is possible for one who believes. And this is the interesting verse. Verse 24. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. I've always found this to be an interesting interaction that Jesus has um, with, with one of his potential followers or, or believers. Just for a second, let's put ourselves in the father's shoes. Imagine being the father of this child and as someone that, and again, I'm not a father, but I feel like I can imagine a little bit of what it's like to be in his shoes where he sees his son struggle right, with this demon possession that comes and goes, I'm sure at very inconvenient times, and he wants nothing more than to heal his son, right? He's a father that he sees his son of getting physically, physically suffering, right? He says that the demon would throw him into the fire, try to drown him. He sees the scars or the burn marks that his son has. He sees his son be socially outcast by society. You can imagine the stigma that was attached to his child and probably to this entire family. You can imagine the emotional and mental toll that it's taken on this child as, as he's constantly having to deal with with all these terrible things that he's doing and being confused and not being able to understand what's going on. But at the same time, this father, as he sees this and as he wants nothing more than to help and to heal his son, the father also has to come to terms with the fact that there is nothing he can do to help his son. That while he wants nothing more than to set his son free from this demon possession, 
It's not in his pay grade. There's nothing the father can do in and of himself. He's not big enough. He's not strong enough. He's not capable enough. He's not holy enough to cast this demon out. And so what he does is in the midst of this, in accepting his helplessness, he hears rumors, right, about this rabbi, this healer, this teacher named Jesus. So he brings his son to Jesus, hoping, desperate, wanting Jesus to do something to help him. Yet the struggle that this father has is, I want my son to be healed. I hope Jesus can do something about it. But when Jesus tells him, all you need is to have faith, the man's honest response is, Jesus, I don't think I have enough. I don't know if I truly, truly have faith and believe that you can heal my son. But the cry of this father, the prayer of this father is, can you help me believe in you? It's always been an interesting to me that the man asks Jesus to help him believe that Jesus can heal the son that he brought him to. He basically asked Jesus, help me have more faith in you. Why don't you help me believe more in you? And Jesus, in his mercy, fills the gaps of faith that this man did not have, and he heals his son. And I think this, the truth of the story teaches a very interesting and important lesson for our own life and our own development and our own relationship and walk with Jesus. That in moments in our lives when our faith seems weak and we feel, I don't know, almost ashamed to come to Jesus and say, you know, God, I've ignored you for all this time. I haven't had this great relationship with you. I don't know if my faith is that strong right now, but all I know is that right now, I need you. Right now, I can't deal with what I'm going through by myself. And yes, I, I'm a little bit ashamed. I'm a little bit embarrassed. I'm a little bit, I, I, I have regret that I could have done better and, and stuck closer by you. And I haven't, but the reality is I'm desperate, God. I need help. I need someone bigger, stronger, more capable, more holy than I am to help me in my situation. And when we're in those moments, we are allowed to ask God to fill in the gaps of our unbelief, that God's grace and mercy functions to bolster our, insu our insufficient faith, and that when we struggle to have faith, when we struggle to maintain that strong belief and connection in Jesus, when we find it hard to believe, we can ask God to help us to believe. That when we feel like we don't have the relationship or faith that Job had, we can ask God to help give us that faith, to help make up the difference so that we can see God work in our lives. These two things I think are very important for us um, when we know someone or when we personally are going through a time of struggle and pain and difficulty. The first is that God can handle your complaints, your doubts, your questions. Job is commended not because he never doubted, not because he only said good things about God, not because he took everything with a smile and a cup half full of positivity, Job is commended that because he struggled and he wrestled and he insulted God, but he did it to God. In all that he did, he never let God out of his sight and out of his life. And this man who brings his son to Jesus, he has a spot in the Bible. He has a story in scripture because he was unable to have that faith, but was bold enough to ask God, God, I need you but I don't have the faith that I would like to have. Can you help me? Help me. 
Help me, help me, Father, because I don't have what it takes. The last person I want to look at um, is someone that did struggle, but, but they're not a biblical character. They're actually someone that's alive today. And I don't usually reference um, celebrities um, in most of my messages, um, but this is someone who struggled a terrible tragedy at a young age, and is also a, a known believer, despite the fact that he's a fairly public figure. Um, and some of you may know him, but Stephen Colbert is actually a talk show host um, that lives in that sort of kind of infotainment um, category of television. But he actually, you may not know this, he lost his father and two of his brothers at the age of 11 in a plane crash. So as a sixth grader, he lost his father and the two brothers that were closest to him in age. And it, I, 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 well, I remember when I found that out, I was so shocked because I mean, his whole persona is like, he's that funny, goofy, he makes these jokes. Um, but it, he has this interview and in this interview, he talks about that tragedy and he references this tragedy as the thing I most wish hadn't happened. And he talks about how he coped with his loss. And if you ever have a chance to check it out, it's a really beautiful interview. But this is one of the most impactful things he says in that interview. And again, he's, he's not that ashamed or afraid of talking about his faith or I believe he's a practicing Catholic. But I think it's especially relevant given the series we had not too long ago in A Son is Given. He references the crucifixion of Jesus on the cross. And this is what Stephen Colbert says about Jesus and his death on the cross and how it helped him cope with what he was going through. This is his quote. And in my tradition, that's the great gift of the sacrifice of Christ, is that God does it too. You're really not alone. God does it too. And as Stephen Colbert was wrestling and processing through the tragedy of losing his father and his loved ones and his brothers, one of the things that helped him kind of come out the other side of this event was that his knowledge of the fact that the God that he was praying to was one that understood the feeling of suffering and of pain. Actually, to make it more accurate, the God that we pray to, the God that you and I pray to, the God that Stephen Colbert was praying through as he was dealing with this turmoil, as he's dealing with this pain, the God that we cry out to when we need help is a God that went out of his way to experience the suffering and pain that we go through. That when Jesus came to this earth as a human being, he chose to forego a life of perfection and sinlessness and holiness. And he came down from his throne in heaven to experience firsthand what it meant to be a human being in a sinful world. That your God, that my God, is a God that truly, not theoretically, not hypothetically, not symbolically, but literally understands what it's like to be in pain and to suffer as a human being. He literally understands firsthand what it's like to be lonely, to be ridiculed, to be stressed out, to be tortured and in pain. That in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus experienced firsthand what it was like to be stressed and to have anxiety and to be fearful of the future and to be fearful of the unknown that was to come. That also in that same garden, Jesus experienced firsthand how it felt to be betrayed by someone he called friend. And then immediately afterwards, be abandoned by everyone that loved him and was close to him. And then a few hours later, Jesus experienced the betrayal of having the very people he came to save exchange his life for the life of a convicted felon. And then hours after that, Jesus experienced the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual pain 
of being crucified on a cross by himself and having his last words be, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You are not alone in your pain. There is someone who understands what you're going through and he understands because he is the most powerful, perfect being in the universe and he uses that power and perfection to stand by your side, to understand you in your pain and your suffering. And he uses his power and omniscience to understand and stand by us because he knows all too well the experience of pain and suffering. That when you feel in those moments that who could possibly understand what I'm going through right now? Who could possibly understand the pain and the, and the aching in my heart and the loneliness that I've been experiencing? I'm telling you now that the person that you can pray to that will truly understand what you're going through is your Heavenly Father. Because He chose, He volunteered to go out of His way to experience firsthand for Himself what it's like to be in a world of sin, what it's like to be in pain and to suffer and to doubt and to have anxiety and stress and to be conflicted. He knows what it's like. And because he knows that he's able to love us all the more deeply. The three people we explore, Job, the father of the demon-possessed child, and Stephen Colbert's quote have taught us that when we are in pain, when we're suffering, that we should bring our complaints to God. Cast your cares upon God. Say your, say your woes. Yell at God. Cry out to God. He is a God that is big enough to handle what we're going through. The second is that when we feel that our faith and our belief or our relationship with God is too weak or insufficient, we are allowed to ask God to help us in our unbelief, to ask God to help bolster the faith that we need, even if we may not have it. And lastly, we can do the previous two things because the third, we know and we remind ourselves that our God is a God that truly understands our suffering. He stands by us. He's lost loved ones. He watched his his colleague and, and the person he, he complimented the most, John the Baptist, died during his ministry. He watched his friends betray him. He watched his friend Lazarus. He attended his friend Lazarus' funeral and wept. He knows what it's like to experience loved ones. He knows what it's like to be abandoned, to be lonely, to be stressed. And because of that, that's all the more reason we can come to God in confidence, knowing that he cares and understands what you are going through. And I hope that more than anything else, you lean into this community during this time when you're going through difficult times. I hope that in your pain and in your suffering, we as our Rock family, as Rock Fellowship, can play a role in reminding you that you are not alone. I know that one of the worst things that can happen when you're suffering or, is in, or in pain is the feeling that you are by yourself, the feeling that you're alone, the feeling like you can't connect with anyone. But I please implore you that if you know someone or if you yourself are going through this time, please, please, please reach out. Or, especially for those of us that have gone through tragedy, that have come out the other side, that you may not be going through anything now, but you know what it's like to experience loss. You know what it's like to be anxious or to be stressed or to have that doubt. If you are someone that has experienced that and come out the other end, I truly believe that it's our duty and our obligation to reach out to those that are currently going through that and remind them that they are loved, that they are not alone. Actually, interestingly, one of the things that Stephen Colbert talks about in his interview is that he's almost grateful and glad that this tragedy happened to him. Not because he wishes it would happen again, but because his experience in this tragedy 
allowed him to understand what it's like to go through this type of loss, and in turn, allowed him to love others much more deeply. And my hope is that for anyone that's watching this, anyone in our church community, that has gone through suffering or pain and loss and come out the other side, that we can use our experience, our wisdom from that time to love others around us that much more deeply. That during this time, when someone is going through pain, suffering, stress, anxiety, doubts and questions, we as a church community can pull together and stand by each other as we remind each other that we are not alone. Join me in a prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I want to thank you for this reminder uh, that you've given us through um, your modern believers and servants now, as well as the biblical characters um, in Scripture, Father, of how we can deal with the inevitable pain and suffering that comes with living in a sinful world, Father. We thank you and we feel honored and privileged that we serve a God that, that cares enough to experience what it was like to be a human being on earth, to experience sin firsthand, even though you never had to, Father. Lord, I pray a special prayer for anyone that's in that situation now that's feeling that doubt, that anxiety, that uncertainty, that pain, that suffering, that loss. Lord, I pray that you remind them again of your love for them, that whatever they may feel, that you are a big enough God to handle their complaints and their doubts and their questions, but that they never let, let you out of their lives, Lord, that they hold on to you. Even if they may not hold on to the complete faith in you, Father, that they hold on to that connection, that dialogue with you, Lord. We thank you for this community that we have, that although we may not be physically present together today, Lord, that we know that we are bound together by our love for you and our love for one another, Father. I ask that you help this church grow in our understanding um, of dealing with pain and suffering within our community, Lord, as we truly draw closer to each other and our love for you. I praise you in your son Jesus' name. Amen.